The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another season, season 10 of Veritas. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. Delighted to be here with you tonight. Tonight, I'll take a bit longer with the introduction because it's a special occasion. Right from the beginning, let me disclose that it was customary to have Cliff High at the beginning of our seasons, but due to health issues affecting Cliff's family, he was not able to make it this time. So keep Cliff and his family in your thoughts and prayers. We have a great show for you tonight. But before we begin, I want to thank all of our Veritas members for your support and loyalty all these years. Just know that without you, Veritas would not be here. I never get tired of letting you know. It has made a difference to me, and I hope it has to you as well. I also want to thank Vic Giza for his weekly contributions and his smart art, bringing a smile to our faces while making us think many times. So thank you, Vic. Those of you who have been following Veritas from the very beginning know the name Milton Torres. For those who don't know, he was our very first guest and the one indirectly responsible for the creation of this program. Because we're entering season 10, I wanted to inquire about his health. To my surprise, I found out he passed away in 2015. For that reason, and the fact we have lost many other guests, 18 as of today that I know of, it could be more, I decided to create a new in-memoriam section on our website, dedicated to the men and women who spent their lives in the pursuit of truth. They had different journeys, but in the end, they all wanted the same, to uncover what is hidden from humanity so that we may all rediscover our true potential. I was privileged to capture a fraction of their lives with all of you, sometimes more than once. Visit the In Memoriam section and keep them in your thoughts and prayers. And this new season, I want to feel your polls more than ever before. I'll send out polls to see where you want to steer the Veritas ship, but expects us to go back to our roots more so this coming year. I also want to have more interaction with all of you, and for that, we're implementing a new way in which you can communicate your comments and questions. For that, I want to create a full episode just between you and I. In the next few days, you will see a link on our website that will allow you to send a 90-second voice message to me. What I want to do to roll this out is have an entire episode with your comments and questions. So stay tuned, and I hope many of you can participate. I know you have been asking for something like this for a long time, and it's coming. And with the premiere episode of Season 10, it's a great time to subscribe, donate, or gift a subscription to a loved one either a Veritas sub or a Sanitas sub. You can also buy flash drives with all our seasons. And if you want to get in touch with me the traditional way, you want to be a guest or have a guest suggestion, just click on the contact button of our website and stay tuned for the new voice messaging system coming in the next few days. All of this at VeritasRadio.com. And tonight we discuss the cult of untruth, and it's always customary with tonight's special guest. It's always a Pandora's box of subjects. I never know what he's going to discuss, but I do know 
that I always feel more enlightened at the end of our interviews. To me, it's a great honor to celebrate our season 10 premiere. Veritas veteran, writer, author, philosopher, teacher, but most importantly, at least to me, a dear friend. Directly from Washington State, I'd like to welcome Neil Kramer. Hello, Neil. Welcome back to Veritas, especially today, season 10 premiere. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you, Mal. It's a great honor for me to, to be with you at this uh, lovely sort of little piece of history of your show. So it's a great opportunity and I'm very thankful to be here. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And to me, you know, when I see number 10, that almost feels, and I don't say this, you know, to brag or anything, because I'm a humble person by nature, but, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, it never feels like, okay, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> but when you see the two digits, you feel like, ah, okay, I think I, wow. I finally got somewhere, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice piece of work. It's a, it's a decade of inquiry and investigation and thought and research, and it's a, a lovely accomplishment. So well done to you and the audience and the, the other guests. Thank you. And I have to tell you, our last interview, I still, still get comments. I, I usually upload the interviews on YouTube uh, a week or two after we air them. And still, that show still has legs. People still comment. And, you know, it's always very interesting. And I always ask you the same question. How is it? Do you have a direct line to the Akashic record that you always get new stuff? Yeah. No, it's funny. I'm going to I'm going to tell you the same as last time. All all I do is I walk around, I drive around, I speak to people, I look, I listen, I write things down, I make a note of things. And it's it's the job of a a living philosopher which we all we all do that. We all have that capacity. It's nothing special. All I've done is make that more of my life than normal. So I don't have a, you know, big family and career to look after. A, you know, as a spiritual human being, uh, you have a choice what you focus on. And I've chosen to focus on bringing whatever wisdom I can muster to life, to home, to work, to relationships, to society, to metaphysics, phenomena, it could be UFOs and Bigfoot one week. It could be Donald Trump and, you know, immigration the next week. It, everything that we have, if we have the gift of insight, uh, which, you know, everybody who listens to your show, I believe, has that impulse and how we care to refine it in ourselves is our own private matter. How good or indifferent that is, is up to us. But if, if we do have this insight, which let's say we all do listening to this show, we have a little bit more obligation, I would say, to turn that sort of torchlight, to turn that flashlight onto the things that matter. So substantial subject matters deserve our attention. And it's our gift to the world when we think about them honestly and truthfully and courageously. So it's just that ongoing process. So when you say to me and we have a chat and agree to do a show, I'll just pick the five, six, seven things that seem to be relevant at the moment. And some of them are subjects we return to and continue to refine. And some of them are new ones. And some of them are very topical at the, of the moment, you know, of the zeitgeist of the day. But it's just the ongoing process of what in many Western esoteric traditions we call engaging with the mystery, investigating the mystery, the great mystery of life. Simple as that. 
And these are subjects that, folks, when you turn on TV, and now, as opposed to 20, 30 years ago, you have hundreds and hundreds of channels, you hardly, hardly ever bump into them. So if people wanted to, in addition to Neil Kramer, if people wanted to get exposed to these subjects in the absence of a mystery school, where should people go these days, Neil? Well, I'm hoping to say next year they should come to my mystery school, but we shall reserve that invitation to where I can actually open the door and welcome people in, which we're very close to now, but we'll say no more about that for the time being. Mm -hmm. In answer to your question today, I would say this. There are very, very few practitioners of true esoteric, true spiritually adept material and teachings in theory and in practice who open themselves to the public. So it's only just, in my personal view, started to happen that the mystery schools, as you might say, the schools that examine the body of sacred work, the body of sacred knowledge that um, describes the world, which used to be called the mysterium, if you Latinize it, or in Greek, the mystikos or the mysterion, uh, the mysticos, the mystics, the mystery, are all those subject matters, all those people, all those threads that are brought together to take a look at it. And they always operated in secret because, as we'll come to when we talk about some of the subject matters today, if you question the formal reality that is put forth by what I call empire, you were executed. So they didn't keep the knowledge secret to make it special for themselves or to self-aggrandize or in any way to elevate their egos. Not at all. That would be very rare that that happened. They did it to protect their lives. So initiatory knowledge is still only just coming into the public domain little by little, and I aim to do my piece of that, which is always to imprint it with the modernity of the day to make it not just some ancient dusty scrolls, but something alive and full of blood and full of vigor and full of creativity and full of relevance. So the ancient wisdom always flows to those who pursue it with any sort of worthy enough vessel, both in themselves and in the school and in the company of good men and women who would want to transmit that knowledge. So it really always was secret and it's just just in the last century starting to move outwards so it's it's hard to find there's no question about it they are few and far between where you would go many people claim mystery school status and i have to say i have never ever seen one public mystery school ever that's worth anything never now i might i may just not have come across it i may just not know about it but over the years, hundreds of clients of mine, because I do this consultative work, working with individuals and groups, hundreds of clients this year, thousands and thousands of clients over the years, and not one of them has ever encountered a worthy, substantial mystery school worth its name, not one. So they're always secret. So you would only have invite only. You, you know, some, some, you would receive a communication. You would get a knock on the door. Somebody would say, we would like to engage you to come and visit with us and meet some people and see what you think. So you would it would be invitation only. You would never be able to join it. They would find you. 
But how different is that from, say, the Masons and some of the other it's very secret similar. organizations? It's very similar. You could say the Masons, the Rosicrucians, some of some Theosophists, some Anthroposophists, many Hermetic Orders, the Golden Dawn, the OTO, many of those groups work with that initiatory structure. As I say, primarily it was used to protect their own lives in more brutal times than we have today. No no more or less enlightened, by the way, just more brutal, more in your face. But also there was the understanding that to stratify knowledge protects the student from the use of unwise information. So I often say it's a bit like you don't give bomb-making instructions to kindergarten children. So you know you don't teach them how to make dynamite until the child has demonstrated a level of maturity and a level of harmony and balance within themselves and strength. Then you would share, you know, kind of provocative and explosive information. So it's rather like that. If you're going to teach people how to make dynamite and use it, the student needs to prove to you that they are capable of harnessing that knowledge. So real mystical knowledge, it's like sticks of dynamite, and you need to be, it's only for a few people. Most people love the idea of it, but when they've actually got it in their hands, they can't deal with it. So it's, it's, it's something that has to be proven from the aspirant to the adept, not the other way around. So you can't buy your way into it. You have to be devoted to that knowledge. And we can certainly talk about the principles of it very openly, and I hope to do that, you know, with you today and bring my knowledge for what it's worth to relevant subject matters today. But the nitty gritty of it, the transmutational knowledge of it, how to change things, how to move things, how to disintegrate and how to remake that kind of primal alchemical knowledge is only for those who can prove their, demo- their devotion to it, their utter um, regard and their utter application, which in these days is very rare. People, are, as you probably have noticed, and as many of your listeners will know, most people are so incredibly ill-disciplined, they lack discernment so much that they will never, ever put themselves in that position because they cannot do it. They've chosen not to do it. But there are some men and women, some aspirants who discipline themselves well and prove to the adept that they are worthy of that path. So it's just like getting a black belt in karate. It's going to take some years. You're going to have to prove a lot. You're going to have to show up week after week after week. They don't just hand that thing to you. This is why I enjoy our discussion so much because we have a set number of topics at the beginning, but it always goes elsewhere like yeah, right now I'm, I'm thinking of what you just said a secret society and we always think the secrecy the elitism of only allowing a certain a selected few but we, we shouldn't be denigrating that all the time no. because if as you said if the, the master or the teacher appears when the student is ready not everyone is ready for that information no they're not another way of thinking about it is this uh, as you know, what uh, we would call empire or the system or the globalists or the shadow government or the deep state, it operates largely through the security apparatus, the intelligence community infrastructure. So the FBI and the CIA are the perfect 
perfect mechanism for empire to control things. Not just those, there's many of them, but those two that we know well. Everyone around the world knows the FBI and the CIA well because of all the television and films. Um, similarly, empire found that some of the Masonic infrastructure was perfectly aligned for their purposes. So it didn't start out like that. You know, most CIA guys, most FBI guys, rank and file are decent men and women, like cops, policemen, policewomen, the decent men and women doing a job of protection, essentially protection. However, there are enclaves like terrorist cells, certain uh, groups within that infrastructure that are completely rogue, completely operating in the face of what those organizations were set up to do, contrary to those principles. And seeing people like, you know, the FBI thing at the moment with Comey and Mueller and all these, it's just, it's in your face. It's easy to see that there are groups within groups within groups. It's very easy to see. And the secret societies quote, that if we read the proclamations of the researchers of the 90s, we know who those guys are who write these books and go on, speaking to us to, to describe these things, although they enlighten us to the uh, methods of some of these groups, they rather paint the wrong picture, which is that they're mostly bad. My experience, and as I say, thousands of the men and women I've spoke to over the years, our experience is that they are mostly good. Mostly good. It's just that that infrastructure of secrecy and what we call stratification, which is having knowledge, the really explosive knowledge only available higher up the degrees, that knowledge uh, and that structure of protecting knowledge serves the purposes of empire's goal to contain the human very well, very, very well. So I, I'm not part of any organizations. I'm just me. But I have been part of two orders in the past. I've never been a mason. I've never done anything like that. So I don't have any allegiances to any of these guys, but I, I meet with a lot of these people regularly. And it's very, very rare that I come across anything, you know, suspicious, anything that leaves me questioning the whole thing. Mostly, even at the very highest levels where you meet in occasionally other adepts and, uh, you know, what you might call mages or seers, very, very advanced men and women. I've never, ever met a negative person. Never. I meet balanced, positive, excellent, mostly men, 99% of them men, and occasionally with the more contemporary orders, women. And they're just the same, just as capable. So it is, it is important for us to question the nature of those organizations. And when our movie Transmutation comes out next year, which I'll hopefully talk to you about when it comes out, um, you'll see a further extrapolation and a description of those very subject matters. So it's good for us to know that. Have you heard the news that since we're talking about all of this, I'm thinking of social media. I'm thinking about the way people today get information, which is, believe it or not, folks, YouTube. People just go to YouTube and just, just search a title, and that's how they're getting a lot of information. <laughs> some of them is disinformation. Some of it's true. But Google will enlist 10,000 new employees yes, to moderate it, YouTube videos. What do you think the purpose of this is? Well, <laughs> it's very clear to me that the tech giants 
the, the tech giants are enemies of the republic, enemies of real people. Companies like Google and Apple and Twitter and Amazon and Samsung, YouTube, Reddit are a servants of empire. They promulgate imperial socialism, the distorted cultural decadence of an anti-human system. So those tech giants kill culture and heritage. They are enemies. So when they uh, employ 10,000 distorted mostly, of course they'll have to be, men and women to discern what's culturally acceptable and what's culturally too provocative, then you realize that the tech titans, the tech giants, are our enemies. They are people who have fallen already. They have fallen for the deception which we'll come to. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me. We have to take our media, especially people like you and me and many of your guests and many of your listeners, we have to take our media onto our own platforms away from the social media platforms. Facebook, all that stuff, you know, Twitter, YouTube, they are going to fail us. They've already started to pull even the most moderate material. Men and women who I've spoke to, and you'll know them very well, Mel, and many of your listeners will, very moderate, really. They're not talking about anything particularly controversial, in my view. And the the material is being pulled, and I'm like, wow, wow, that is weird. That is interesting. Now, if it was somebody talking about really, really controversial, defamatory, super racist stuff, I'd say, well, okay, you know, that is going to create problems. That might put people in the street. I get it even though in my world racism does not exist. But for what most people get that to be, I would understand that. I'm talking about people who are talking about very abstract, theological, philosophical, general, very broad parapolitical issues too. And the material is disappearing, especially from YouTube and Facebook. Unbelievable. So it doesn't surprise me at all. And the lesson for us is we have to take our media onto our own platform, which is why I... Never post anything on YouTube, ever, ever, ever. I have never once ever posted a single YouTube thing. And the Facebook stuff is just to say, hello, here's a, here's a beautiful picture. Here's a thought I had. Uh, oh, here's a, you know, a new essay I've written or here's a audio recording I've put out. You know, it's just a, a bulletin board, a notice board. But to have that constitute my work, I would never do it because I don't trust those people. Never have done. Well, that's exactly why I brought this up subconsciously. Many of my colleagues and I are, are being censored, not yep. by, you know, overtly, overtly telling us that these tech companies, overtly telling us, shut up, but by them demonetizing many of them. I don't that's care right. about the monetization because that's not how I do it, but they have completely demonetized all my videos, even if they deal with near-death experiences, which is the most innocent thing you can discuss. Of course, of uh, course, that's exactly what I mean. A near-death experience is a primary metaphysical inquiry, but because you touch other certain subject matters, you will be flagged. And why is that? Because the tech giants have already fallen into the service of empire. They're, they only, only exist to take us away from our nature, only. Just in the same way that you may say, this is a rather provocative thing, but if I can't see it on your show, I'm not sure where I can. 
NASA, let's say, exists purely to despiritualize the world, in my view. That's its primary, primary goal. Sending rockets up and down to goodness knows where or not is a secondary, secondary byproduct. NASA exists to obscure God, purely to despiritualize the world. That's its job. Those tech giants, they move us away from our nature, and they move us to become almost servants of the technology. And when you look at when they were founded, and when you look at how they set up, and we were talking about the guys who were doing Facebook the other day, and they admitted they set it up to be an addictive, psychologically harmful trigger mechanism where people want to check whether they are liked or disliked. How many likes and dislikes? Do people agree with you? Do people think you're stupid? And that basic human need to check, to check your email, check the feed, check your likes, check your dislikes, is what Facebook was set up from the beginning to achieve, which was to trigger this innate vulnerability in human beings. So it was set up with ill intent, wrong-heartedness right from the beginning. It's not just a place where we share pictures of our children in a paddling pool on a summer's afternoon. No, it's a place where you're going to have to look at that page at least once a day. You'll have to. If you have a Facebook page, you will look at it. You'll have to. Only the very most disciplined people don't do that. So none of these organizations, even when the name of the company, like Google, you'll say, well, just Google it. I don't know. Google is your friend. Have a bit of Google foo. Find out how to search. Google has become a word. You know, it's it's a, a noun. It's a verb. It's like a way of describing something, to Google something. And yet Google, which is ironic, are evil. So they say don't be evil is one of their internal corporate uh, principles and they are evil <laughs> fail epic fail they are evil google is not helping us and anyone who knows anything about technology you would never search with google because it isn't giving you actual search results it's giving you search bubbles search micro worlds search ecologies it's not actual plain open searching to do that, you have to go elsewhere. So I, it's very rare that I use Google. Sometimes use it for images. Google image search is still quite zippy and good. Yeah. But for actually searching for material, it would be very rare, and it has been for many years for me to use Google because it isn't actually searching the internet openly. No, they select. They select what they want you That's right. to see. That's right. So as well as our 10,000 army of people deciding on what's acceptable and unacceptable, which is completely garbage, by the way. So as soon as you hear that, you must instantly stop relying on those sources for anything. But they'll also have armies of people, as indeed they do, not just the technology and the AI, but people sat in rooms all over the world, Asia, Africa, Australasia, Europe, America, people sat in rooms determining what is the headlines, what's the priority headlines is it Donald Trump? Is it the economy? Is it a school shooting? Is it a little uh, rabbit that's been hurt, hurt its leg, and so a child has rescued it on a skateboard? Is it the fact that the uh, the giant asteroid is coming to smash into the Earth? What what's the what's the nature, and what's the priority of those headlines? That's decided by a very small number of people, and then put out 
to look like natural news over all the different news sources, which I demonstrated in September when I gave a talk at the Omega Institute. We'll, we'll talk about that later. It's very, very clear. It's very simple. So the bottom line is, as I say, the tech companies, the tech giants, they are giants as well. They are enemies of the republic, particularly if you're an American, uh, where you know what republic means as opposed to a fake democracy like most other places. They're enemies of the republic, and they they serve empire knowingly, hardly ever, unknowingly most of the time. They have been captured. They have been conditioned, those men and women who walk around the streets, and you can, you'll see them. They're just they're decent people. There's nothing wrong, but they don't understand. They don't get it. They are ignorant of the nature of things, and so they see it as protecting people from offensive material, protecting people from hate, you know, which is absolutely ridiculous. Hate is the most natural, normal, okay, beautiful thing in the world. If you cannot hate, you cannot love. If you cannot feel hatred and aggression and violence, you are not a human being. So they're trying to remove our basic instincts, Feel our basic feelings. feelings. Yeah. Yeah, empire empire's big trick. Let's let's get into it. If so if as we approach our first subject matter, Mel, if I may, let me just make a few introductory remarks because what you just said leads us into that very nicely. And I think it'll help us clarify a lot of things for our discussion today. Really the only trick of empire is deception. To deceive us into not feeling to be afraid to feel, to deceive us into f seeing things incorrectly, to deceive us into abusing ourselves, things like that. Its only trick is deception. And the system of human containment that this uh, empire seeks to achieve, uh, when the deception is exposed, when its tricks are exposed, it falls to pieces. So it's like a card trick. And once, once you've seen the method of the trick, it, the card didn't really disappear. It went up the guy's sleeve. And once you've seen that, it never has the mysterious, magical effect that it used to have. You cannot unsee the method of the deception once you've seen it. So the deceptions of empire, uh, it's a very deep and complex area of study. And it takes at least a decade of careful, close, scholarly, balanced, devoted study to, to get it, to really get it. And some many people have done that. Many people have not done that. But without that careful study of these deceptions, it's it's very often misunderstood and mischaracterized what empire does, what the system does, what the you know elites do, whatever you want to call it. And many of the most popular researchers and commentators, naming no names, often get it upside down and back to front, but we won't worry who they are. So let us deal, say, very simply with one element of Empire's deceptive practices, one single trick that it uses over and over again, and it fools most people most of the time with, with tremendous, unerring, uncanny success. And it's a very simple thing that they do, and it, and it is this. Empire presents bad things as good things. Say like Operation Iraqi Freedom, which was a totally unlawful invasion, like the Affordable Health Care Act, terrible social justice, 
democracy, civil rights, gender equality, things like that. Things that sound good, that appear perfectly acceptable, and that, you know, without further study, you would sort of reflexively agree with. But in actual fact, when you really analyze these many deceptions very closely, they are almost always the opposite of what they purport to be. They are bad things disguised as good things. And it, it never ceases to amaze me how many people are so routinely fooled by this, even like net neutrality. You know, that's a whole thing. We won't get into that. People are so violently and habitually allowing themselves to be deceived. And, you know, you'd say, well, why, why would somebody do that? Why is this? Why would somebody agree to deceive themselves? And there are many reasons for that, but a big chunk of it is because the education system, which we'll come to later, the media, the unreal anti-human culture, the politics, local regulations and laws are all hell-bent on preventing anyone from breaking out of the dream bubble of nonsense that they've lived in the whole lives. So people are sort of encouraged from infancy to protect this this dream bubble of a happy world where everyone is doing the best they can. That's the bubble. That's the dream bubble. And it is untrue. And I use the word dream advisedly in this case. I mean, dreaming is usually, of course, rather a wonderful thing. But dreaming should be expansive. It should be outward reaching, something that is very unrestrained and free. If that dreaming is confined within a bubble, within a sort of containment field, then the person will become delusional and they will effectively become psychotic over time when that dreaming is restricted in that bubble. And let's say, let's just look at the, let's think of the sort of commonly understood definition of psychosis. Uh, along these lines, I'm not reading this, uh, a sort of mental illness that is typified by big changes in personality. Yes, uh, impaired functioning and uh, a corrupted, faulty sense of objective reality. Yes. So think about it. The person who drinks deeply from the poison wells of CNN and BBC, the New York Times, The Guardian, Radio 4, NPR, the NPR listener, they're bad ones, Hollywood, mainstream education, politics, and all that, the person who imbibes this contamination and believes it, that person over time becomes psychotic. Distorted view of reality, psychotic. And they think that Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon and Michael Moore and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and bloody Nancy Pelosi and Mitt Romney and Bill O'Reilly and John McCain, they believe that people like that are telling them things that are true and relevant and important about the world. And of course, those characters, and we could name 50 trillion of them, those characters, those people have no idea what is happening in the world, those celebrities, none at all. They are profoundly and irreversibly deranged. They cannot discern the difference between the anti-human delusions that fill their dream bubble and the actual reality of the outside world. They can't do it. So I would propose to you, Mel, and of course to our 
beloved listeners, who thank goodness they're out there in numbers, I propose to you that the situation we have is very dramatic at the moment. It's not just a casual observance like it might have been 20, 30 years ago. We now have a world that is packed to the rafters with psychotic, delusional, unhinged people. Men and women, young and old, blue and red, left and right, good-hearted and wrong-hearted, it makes no difference. People who have joined, let us say, a cult of untruth, a cult of untruth, and nothing you or I can say to them will ever deter them from their blind faith in the untruthful proclamations of their priests, those men and women we talked about earlier, those celebrities, some of whom we we know very well and some of whom we don't know so well. So we have billions of cult of untruth believers, acolytes, who are dangerously delusional. And that that danger, you know, sometimes it's physical and it manifests outside them. Like, in other words, they they will do hazardous bad things to themselves physically and others other people too and sometimes that harm from the derangement is inside and those people will withdraw from the world into a distorted mental concealment they go weird and have immense emotional and social difficulties which is by far the most common form of dangerous delusional behavior most people are like that in my view most people are like that So for us to perceive and understand this rather spectacular social problem is very important. It is, I would say, vital to appreciate the remarkable set of circumstances that we are currently in that have no precedence in modern history, none none at all. The rate of social disintegration is so rapid now, so profound, it's, it's hard to keep up with. Especially when you look at the vile education system and at TV and movies and news and all the terrible nonsense about gender and race and grassroots resistance and all that nonsense. Very pathetic, very devoid of wisdom. However, however, there is a silver lining to this rather gargantuan, you know, gray cloud. The mass psychosis that we see and the uh, supremely plain and evident presence of empire now are so crystal clear, so palpable, that only the most unconscious and obstinate person would ever choose to live in these dream bubbles that empire manufactures that asks you to subscribe to, asks you to have this worldview. Only the very stupidest person would ever do that. So to put it another way, the unconscious sleeping human is now very easy to identify. Like like in bird watching, I'll be a bit uh, dorky for a moment here. In bird watching, there's like 50 million little brown and white birds that all look a bit the same, like sparrows and whatnot. And it's sometimes hard to distinguish between one type and another. You know, you've got a black phoebe or a dark-eyed junco or a wren or a finch or this or that. Sometimes you can't tell. They all look a bit the same. But then imagine, imagine suddenly a giant red and yellow iridescent parrot comes and lands in the middle of your backyard and there it is very very easy to identify and now we have that the people who don't want to know what the nature of reality is are very simple to spot they're revealing themselves very easily because of the extreme circumstances 
And it is their business, you know, if they want to do that, if they want to live in a dream bubble. That's their prerogative to not know what is happening in their own life. That's their choice. Nothing to do with me or you. But I personally then know that though I will continue to be civilized and polite and decent and good natured with everyone, I will not waste my personal social time, my my intellectual or emotional energy on these giant red and yellow iridescent parrots, on the self-chosen unconscious dream bubble person. No, thank you. Good luck to them. Happy dreaming, but no, it's not for me. I want to participate in this world. I want to move inside its mysteries deeper and deeper every day. And I want to spend my time with other men and women who are doing the same, who are strong, fierce individuals, beautiful, harmonious, aggressive, excellent, awesome men and women. That's what I want. You know, I don't even know how to verbalize what I'm about to say, and I hope I'm not offending anyone. I am the type of person who believes that any consenting adult, they can do whatever they want. But when the when you bring children to the equation, I have a big problem. The other day, and this is part of the problem with the social media, uh, one of our friends, Facebook, she was outraged and with reason. And she even put my name like, what do you think about this? Mm. She posted... A, this is this coming coming from the LGBT Foundation, I believe. I thought it was a joke, but it's not. <laughs> they had the rainbow flag, and they call it "Love is Gender and Age Blind," and they had the men, the women, the trans, whatever, and a child. Love is age blind. How low mm. can we get, Neil? Yeah, well, it's very common amongst the decadents to. Uh, accept and embrace pedophilia very very common uh think let me put it this way uh gender the word gender just means classification type category that's all that word means that's all it's nothing to do with the binary reality of biological sex which is either male or female it's nothing in between male or female end of story gender only began to be conflated with biological sex when empire used feminism, as it often did, in the 60s and 70s to confuse the two. So a gender expression, as it relates to looking like a man, behaving like a man, looking like a woman, behaving like a woman, or something in between, is a totally meaningless social construct, totally, entirely arbitrary. And you may even say, harmful. That's a choice. Uh, and think of this. This is very, very common knowledge, and there's no, there's, no, there's no two ways about this. Mental health problems in people who have messed around with their gender expression are mostly double and sometimes triple the rates of people who have not messed around with their gender expression. And suicide rates amongst transgender as we call them today are nine times the normal rate so to me this indicates that the question of gender in that person's mind was not the root of their problem it was not the cause or solution to their internal disharmony it is always these things a spiritual question so our disharmony always comes from an existential trauma, healing, human-embracing, spiritual solution problem. In my view, it is almost never 
to do with gender. And once that is realized, which for many of these people who are, who have spoken to me, like I say, over the last 20 years, these gender creative people have realized that their gender changing was not it. It was not it. So they feel after their problem hasn't gone away, that the extraordinary journey that they took themselves on did not solve the problem. And it dismays them, to say the very least. It dismays them. And until we can capture that thought, until we can get that and look at it carefully and examine the reality of it, you will see that gender expression is not at all what we think it is. It's a bad thing disguised as a good thing once again. Now, if you came to me and said, hey, Neil, I've got news for you. I'm going to call myself Melanie now, and I've got a big blonde wig on, and I've got a leopard skin skirt on, and some stockings and high heels and some sexy lipstick and this and that. I'd say, you know what, Melanie? I love you, whatever. I just like your essence. I don't give a shit how you dress yourself and how your gender expression is. That's fine with me. I don't care. Why would it be okay? Because it's you. And I know you. And I know you are a balanced, peaceful, wise man. And you have perspective. You have a moral code. You have principles. You are mature. I understand that about you. Like many people I know, I'm happy to say, you have those things. So if you do that, I think, wow, that's crazy, but that's excellent, whatever. Crazy, I love you, whatever, it doesn't matter. When I come across people who are playing with gender, whether they're five years old or whether they're 75 years old, I always see problems that are, have gone unaddressed and have been characterized as a gender problem which have nothing to do with that. And often, this is the frustrating thing, you could say initially that was not that person's fault. They were advised. They went to seek counsel as they are doing now. And when they felt weird and funny and depressed and sick in themselves, traumatized by all kinds of terrible things that happen in life to all of us, somebody said something about gender. And then they became fixated on it and they thought, that's it. That's it. If I can realign my gender, I think that's it. It must be that because the, the peace of being a woman instead of a man, the peace of being a man instead of a woman, that must be it. That's where I'll get my peace. That's, that's the problem. It is not the problem. It's extremely rare that that would ever be the problem. One in a billion rare. But Empire is saying to children at school, your gender expression, your biological sex are the same thing. And you can express those however you wish. And your parents have no say in that. That's your choice. Whether you're five or 75, it doesn't matter. That's your choice. And the very most casual view of this, the very most cursory speculation of it, we can see it is wrong. Absolutely. And by the way, in defense of the gay and lesbian community, look, I understand your plight, but when they mix this pedophilia part with all of you, they're basically removing some of those efforts that you have tried to accomplish for so many years. To me, this transgender part is X, there's XX and XY. 
That's <laughs> it. That's science. That's physiology. Anything else is an artificial cultural construct. Of course. If, my, if, you, if you say to me, I'm Melanie now, Melanie Fabregas, and I'm a woman, I'll say, Mel, you're not a woman. You're a man pretending to be a woman. Now, if it makes you feel comfortable because I'm very fond of you, I will call you she and her and Melanie. But you will always, always be a man pretending to be a woman. You cannot change your sex. No one ever has done that. No one can do that. You cannot change sex. There's no such thing as transsexual. There's no such thing as a sex change. You can't do it. It's not, it's not possible. You can't do that right now. You can't do it. What you can do is pretend to be something else. And if you were doing that in all sincerity and with great wisdom and great healing and tremendous equilibrium of character and purpose and emotional balance and harmony within oneself, then okay. okay. Well, what prevents, Neil, what prevents somebody from saying, okay, now they have transsexuals, transgender, there's a man I saw a few weeks ago who is a, a, a male, and he wants to be a female Filipino woman, transracial. <laughs> what happens if somebody decides, I identify myself so much with cats, I want to be trans species. Where yeah. does it stop? Well, it doesn't. It's stupid. It's like if I said, I'm going to call myself something else. I'm going to make myself into an Asian man, and I'm going to have surgery to change my skin pigmentation from pasty English white to lovely Asian olive colored skin or whatever. And I'm going to change my eyes to have the same shape as Asian eyes. I'm going to change my eyelids to mimic the way Asian eyelids move. I'm going to dye my remainder of my hair black. <laughs> I am going to... A remainder. <laughs> I'm going to slim down. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally like Zen baldy now, but uh, there we are. I'm going to slim down. And instead of being 200 pounds, I'll make myself 120 pounds and look all s svelte and sylph-like and beautiful and slim. I'm going to do all those things, and now I'm an Asian. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're a white European English potato hobbit pretending to be Asian. And no, that's never going to change. That's never going to change. You are what you are. And that... Uh, crossing of the boundaries is is very significant and let, let's let's use that let's use that as a as a move into our consideration of taboo subjects we've got what have we got 10 15 minutes yeah about yeah mm -hmm. so to me this is interesting because you're not supposed to disagree with the formal narrative on gender are you and if you do you're a hater which is the equivalent of uh you know the invasion of the body snatchers. You know that movie. Oh, sure. the, original, the original black and white one, and then there's the wonderful 1970s one with Leonard Nimoy and uh, Donald Sutherland in it. So, invasion of the body snatchers. When somebody's been replaced and they're no longer a human being, they're this alien plant thing. When those alien plant things spot a real person, they point at them and scream, don't they? Do you remember that? Sure. And when they do that, the equivalent today of doing that is calling someone a hater. A hater is somebody who questions the narrative, typically. And if you question the narrative, you're a hater. So that's very funny to me because I hate tons of things. I hate so many things. And my hate is black and it is 
bottomless and it is furious and I hate and hate and hate. And it enables me to be a full human being. It enables me to do that. And I love with a capacity that few people I've ever met can do. It almost sets me on fire. So it's both ways. I can do it both ways. When we consider taboo subjects, it's a very simple matter, but very important to me. If we get this wrong, we end up in all sorts of unnecessary turmoil. So let's frame taboo subjects with a question. Should there be in the life of a spiritual human being, a free-thinking, open, deep, truthful adventurer, should there ever be subject matters that we cannot talk about? Is it okay that there exists taboo subjects, forbidden subjects, that we are not supposed to question? Things that happen in the world that we are prohibited from questioning the official version of events that has been put before before us. Is that okay? You know, things like school shootings, the shape of the earth, the Holocaust, the differences between the continental races, the origins of the world religions, immigration, moon landings, satanic ritual, ceremonial abuse, stuff like that. Should any of those subjects, or things like them, there's a hundred others of course, Should any of those things be something we should avoid in case someone's upset or offended, in case somebody can't deal with it? Should it it be? So let's take one example. Consider World War II, right? Let us consider one portrayal of one element that happened between 1939 and 1945, a, a blink of an eye ago. A thing that we have come to call the Holocaust, right? Let us begin with one staggering observation. And this, this to me, again, is critical and illustrates everything I'm saying. Okay? It is now, today, in 2017, illegal in 17 countries to question the authenticity of the Holocaust. And I don't mean weird little countries you've never heard of. I mean big old countries like France and Germany and Switzerland and Austria and Belgium and Hungary and Israel and Poland and Portugal. You are a criminal in those countries if you decide you don't agree with the official story of the Holocaust, the Shoah. You can go to prison for even questioning it. So let's let's get that straight. It is considered a criminal act punishable by imprisonment if you discuss openly any particulars of an historical event that diverge from the formal account. It is illegal to disagree with an historical event. Illegal. You cannot talk about it. And if your views differ from the description that empire has put forth, you're in big trouble. For it is empire, of course, who constructed that historical account. And any historian or researcher who deviates from that account is, at best, ruined, ridiculed, and at worst, imprisoned, often in solitary confinement, as we've recently seen with a number of people. And we've seen this with many fine English and German Jewish researchers who have questioned the official story. People with an axe to grind on every side, have gone to prison. 
And even in countries where they don't specifically outlaw that, it is still considered hate speech, which you can be in prison for. And those are the most punished, the, the Jews who question it. Because right, in, the eyes the of the, in the eyes of the Kassarian Mafia, and we can talk about that later after the break, those are the biggest threat. Because when you have a Jewish person questioning that, well, that cannot happen. It ruins the card trick, doesn't it? It ruins the card trick. So when I first learned about all this in 1995, uh, I was horrified that such a thing is even possible to outlaw thought, to outlaw free speech and investigation. It was horrific to me. Now, a long time later, I understand. But at that time, it was very shocking to me. So it's, it's no less shocking now, but I get it. So the shock has lessened a little because I understand why. And the disgraceful political leaders of my beloved homeland and many Western, Western European lands that I also love dearly were complicit in this very egregious suppression of free speech. So I did what any self-respecting, good-hearted, philosophically inclined human being would do, and I started to investigate Why? Because it, this subject matter represents a whole load of other subject matters, a whole load of other forbidden things. And like a detective, you would say to yourself, wouldn't you, the one thing that the system doesn't want me to look at, in fact, it makes it illegal for me to truthfully look at, that's a clue, that's a massive clue, that this event is problematical. Let's just say that, it's problematical. An event with many problems and holes and discrepancies and alternative viewpoints, the Holocaust. And I'll say no more than that here. And to label oneself as a Holocaust denier is like saying I'm a 9-11 denier. You know, I wouldn't, you wouldn't use that language. The buildings were destroyed. People died. And in Germany, Jewish people died in numbers. We know that. It's not the outright denial of the factual occurrences. It's a question of what was the foreknowledge? What was the planning? What were the numbers? What was the nature of the event? What's the corroborating documentation? English, German, Jewish, Polish, Russian. And what about the truly enormous, enormous, undeniable inconsistencies and incongruities between the formal description of the event and what actually appears to have happened? So I, I treated that in my own personal studies for 20 years now as an object lesson in suppression and personally many people know this about me my blood is part english part scottish part german part jewish part danish so i have ver various <laughs> interests in this subject matter on a purely individual level so i'm not utterly detached i have some emotional responses and motivations no doubt But on the whole, I am able to maintain and continue to focus in a vigorously objective manner on, in this work, in this respect. And the Holocaust now is just the tip of the iceberg in what other events I now know to be very different to the way they were originally portrayed. So many things, most historical events are fiction, most wars, most conflicts Most information has been obscured. The people were not who we th they thought we were. They didn't even exist, many of them. And it's a dramatic, colossal shift in perceiving human history. And one 
in actual fact, and this is the thing that uh, is always present in my work, despite all of this, it has a good outcome. Because what it, what it leads you to is the fact that human beings, though gullible, when left to their own natural society, are pretty good entities. We're not as disconnected and flawed and violent and immoral as we are asked to believe of ourselves. We are, in fact, when you change the storylines to, to the real ones, we are, it turns out, we are, in fact, full of power and spirit and creativity and love and excellence. If only we discipline ourselves and learn from our wise elders during our formative years, we will always excel. The human being is a good entity. Always it will excel. That's the, the problem, though, is that people cannot emotionally detach from these issues. So, you know, we'll say this in conclusion about it. You know, when, when people learn something, that someone has a very provocative view, a very alternative view, it sometimes disturbs them. So consider it like this. Do we need... A question again, do we need to agree with everything someone says, especially if that figure broadcasts to a large number of people, a larger number of people than normal, say, people like you, people like me, and, you know, other shows like this. Do we have to agree with everything someone says in order for us to consider that person good? So people will say to me, you know, I was with you, Neil, all the way till you started talking about guns or flat earth or Nazis or sadomasochistic giraffes or something. Something they don't like. Something they don't agree with. Something they don't like the feeling of, right? So then they have to do away. They have to eject the fictional pro projection that they placed upon me or you or some author or some speaker or some researcher, some teacher, whatever. These people who have to agree with everything are in a state of emotional arrested development. And so anyone who can't deal with that, I have a big problem with that. I think, well, I'm not sure why you're even here. I'm not sure why you're even looking at this. Because the whole enterprise of the spiritual human is to examine everything, everything, no taboos, no prohibitions, everything is under the scrutiny of the adventurous, truthful human. This is just an incredible conversation. You know, I'm going to do, folks, I'm going to begin to do something unorthodox this season 10, and I'll begin tonight. At the end of this interview, I will add a piece of audio related to what Neil was discussing. It will give you an incredible perspective, and it will probably shock you, but you will see things more clearly. So after the end of our interview, go to the third segment if you want to listen you don't have to but it's there if you want to when we come back we have more of the cult of untruths the anesthesia of the new age there's no opposing view voice in mainstream europe and australasia control words and control the thoughts real education not the indoctrination that we see these days the death of the establishment and even the weaponization of immigration but neil how can people learn more about your work? And you also wanted to mention something, a project you're involved with now. Sure. Well, it's very easy. You can learn more about me and the things that I feel at neilkramer.com. N-E-I-L-K-R-A-M-E-R.com. 
I also have a new recording. So this is the bit where I flog my products. I also have a new recording uh, called Way of the Supernal Light. It's a live audio recording from the Stillwater Theatre at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, upstate New York, which we had a, a wonderful weekend in September 2017. Fabulous time. Packed house, splendid men and women from all over the world who came to see me and share their energy and time and wisdom. It was great. So there's seven and a half hours, something like that, of audio workshop just to listen to. And I talk about esoteric discovery, spiritual contemplation, the metaphysical enigmas of the world, taboos, the supernal light. If you don't know what that is, you'll discover. And we explore the connection between the inner worlds, the outer worlds, politics, Trump, the BBC, World War II, all sorts of interesting things. Really a, a sort of spiritual and philosophical commentary on these very dramatic and fascinating and dangerous and beautiful times that we live in, these enormous social transitions and the breakdowns that happen because of that and the restorations that arise because of that. So it's an adventure really, something to invigorate the soul and if you like it, if you listen to that, you can download it for $20, price of a large pizza. We're going to do it all over again. Brand new, new subjects, bigger, better, juicier, more succulent and esoterically radiant. September the 7th, the whole weekend, 2018. So right now, if you like this and you like what I do, come and be with us and check neilkramer.com and you'll see all the different ways you can do that. Wonderful. I remember having seen one of your presentations and Gosh, if you have a chance to watch Neil Kramer in person, it's just incredible. Folks, don't go anywhere. Mel Fabrica is here with Neil Kramer. So much more when we return the member section. You are listening to Veritas, season premiere, season 10. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, Miracle Mineral Solution, Pure Organic Sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. <laughs>